My name is Carl Anthony, and I work in the automotive industry in Detroit. Sometimes that work encompasses future vehicle technology, and that's what we talk about here, for the most part anyway. This is AutoVision News Radio. When Ed Olson, co-founder and CEO of May Mobility, told me he grew up in Bloomington, Minnesota, I went back to 1992, the year the Mall of America opened its doors. I grew up in Northwest Iowa, and the first summer the Mall of America opened, we piled into my dad's 1979 blue Ford Thunderbird for a family vacation to Knott's Camp Snoopy. From the summer of 92 onward, Mall of America became our primary family summer vacation destination. After recording this episode of AutoVision News Radio with Ed, I thought back to those early years of cruising up the highway toward the Twin Cities in my dad's 79 T-Bird. I remember, one, the hood of that car being very long, but I remember my dad being adamant about not exceeding the 55 mile an hour speed limit and keeping a watchful, vigilant eye on the road so we would be safe because driving can be unpredictable. We didn't know it then and we didn't have a term for it, but my dad was watching for edge cases. Among the core philosophies of May Mobility is this idea of addressing the unpredictable nature of driving through a remarkable innovation known as multi-policy decision-making or MPDM for short. And from there, May Mobility's vision of providing accessible transportation to everyone begins to take shape. From ADAS to electrification. This is AutoVision News Radio with Carl Anthony in Detroit, Michigan. Autonomous vehicles have been part of Ed Olson's life for over two decades. Before May Mobility, he co-led autonomous vehicle development at Toyota Research Institute and helped develop autonomous vehicles at Ford Motor Company. A professor of computer science at the University of Michigan, Ed's passion for the field started in second grade when he began writing software. After high school, Ed spent 13 years at MIT, earning a PhD in electrical engineering and computer science. And while I was there, I was really fortunate to be there during the DARPA Urban Challenge, which was one of these seminal events in the autonomous vehicle space. Multiple cars driving around, interacting with each other. There were stunt drivers on site. It was an amazing experience. I graduated, got my PhD, went the academic route, which brought me out to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I joined the faculty in the computer science department. And I did the usual sort of faculty things. I wrote a lot of papers, worked with a lot of great students, uh, got tenure, but I got antsy to get back to those autonomous vehicle days. And so started working with Ford as a principal investigator on their autonomous vehicle team for a number of years before I got recruited over to Toyota Research Institute, was co-director of autonomous driving there. And, uh, you know, at this point, you might think, hey, you've got this PhD professor egghead guy. He's at Toyota Research Institute. Uh, we had a billion dollar budget to go build the world's best autonomous driving team, but it wasn't for me. I felt like I had a deep need, not just a desire, but a need to put this technology into practice, to build a business, to solve real world problems, to commercialize it. That led me to start May Mobility in 2017. And so we kept a lot of those great relationships with Toyota and other companies that I've worked with, but we're living the dream now. We're building the technology. We're building a business at the same time. And it's really exciting to be six years down this adventure. Ed, do you remember what it was when you woke up one day and you said, 
this just isn't for me. I've got to do something else. You know, there's a, a great joy in solving really hard technical problems. I, I think about problems as almost like rusty nuts. And every once in a while, someone comes along with a bigger wrench that can turn a bolt that nobody else could ever turn before. And I love that. And that that's what led me into academia and Toyota Research Institute in the first place to solve some of the world's hardest technical problems. But it, it leaves something missing. Like, how, how is that getting out into the world? What is the, what is the impact that we're going to have on our communities? What is the impact that we're going to have on people who need better transportation solutions? I like biking and walking in Ann Arbor. And, you know, one of the things that was, was really great, uh, do you remember when COVID was kind of in full, full swing? Right. Uh, ironically, one of the best things about it was that the restaurants would spill out onto the streets. Right. And yeah. and there, it changed, it transformed the way that we thought about downtowns. And yeah. so many people would have conversations like, why why can't we live like this all the time? And the, the, the chronology isn't quite right there because we were all, May was already there, but that's the sense of look what a city can be. And that's what led me to, to want to create May. May Mobility works with transit agencies, cities, campuses, and other organizations to bring autonomy into their transportation ecosystems. And the goal then is to address and solve deficiencies within that ecosystem. May Mobility describes this as a transit toolbox, and autonomous vehicles are one of the tools inside of that kit. This is similar to Ed talking about that big wrench to turn the nuts and bolts that we've not been able to loosen before. May Mobility's perspective is about asking what you could do, what problems you might be able to solve, if you integrated autonomous vehicles in a city or municipality as part of a shared mobility network. Every time you see a bus driving around with less than a, you know, four or five people on it, you're looking at a transportation problem. You're looking at a bus that costs $125 an hour to operate that's not serving very many riders. And oftentimes those routes have really long wait times too. So the passengers that are on them waited for 60 or 90 minutes to get on that bus. That's a transportation problem. And I feel that one of the things that we can do is make public transit better by giving transportation professionals more tools to work with. We're not anti-bus. There are places where buses are great solutions. Keep those. But in places where buses are driving around empty, using a lot of resources, we think that we can provide something better, something that's going to be uh, really exciting to riders that can attract new people into public transit. Ed cited the work of Bogota's former mayor, Enrique Pinalosa. I will leave a link to an excellent article by Joe Helm for citychangers.org in the show notes. Helm's article details how Pinalosa faced opposition in the late 90s over his vision of building a more equitable and accessible cityscape, one that would serve all socioeconomic classes. The title of the article is based on Pinalosa's idea that an advanced city is one where the wealthy take public transportation. And it's such a beautiful vision because you can imagine like if everybody just used public transit, we would need fewer roadways. We need less, fewer parking structures that would make more room for green space or housing or cool retail or, or all the things that make a city really great. We'd have more room for all of that. But the question is, how do you make everyone want to use public transit when public transit doesn't always work for everyone? And you see that written on every bus that's driving around with less than a handful of people. And what we know is that 
especially in the car dependent sprawl that describes much of North America, that you need an on-demand point-to-point system. Fixed routes don't work, just not enough population density in so much of the US for that to work. And so that's where providing an on-demand service can make sense. So what do we do? We work with cities. Cities are our customers. They tell us, hey, Ed, we've got this bus network here, Route 22A, and it's just not delivering the service that we want. How can we make this better? And we say, well, why don't we try putting some on-demand microtransit into that area? And then we operate that service. We attract new people into public transit. We provide an accessible solution. They're wheelchair accessible. They're easy to use. They're fun to use. And they get people where they need to go. If plugging autonomous vehicles into a larger mobility ecosystem can help us usher in all the things we've been discussing, the next question is how do you empower and equip that autonomous vehicle for such a task? I go back to Ed's big wrench analogy, back to the toolkit visual. You have these nuts and bolts that you just can't seem to loosen, so you need a bigger, better wrench to place in the toolbox for that job. And that wrench in this case will enable autonomous vehicles to perform safely and accurately in the real world. I believe May Mobility's multi-policy decision-making, or MPDM, is that wrench that Ed is referencing. Here's the summary, and I quote May Mobility now directly. MPDM reframes the challenge for AVs. Rather than telling a vehicle what to do and when, which is what rules-based systems do, MPDM continually runs real-time onboard simulations to virtually imagine thousands of possible scenarios every second and enables a vehicle to decide for itself which action is the safest. These endless simulations lead to emergent behavior that allows a vehicle to solve every problem imaginable. The way that we think about autonomous driving is really informed by by the fact that we've done this a bunch of times before and failed. So in a lot of ways, you can think of multi-policy decision-making as the solution that we came to only after having tried and failed a lot of times before. Right. At MIT, at Ford, Toyota, uh, much like the rest of the industry, usually think about building an autonomy stack by by you, you put together two things, really smart people and a big corpus of scenarios that the car should be able to handle. And then your engineers go off and they build build a s- autonomous driving software stack. And then you put it out into the world. If the vehicle finds it as it's driving around, finds itself in a situation that's either something the engineers already thought of, or is one of the test cases that uh, is in your corpus, you're good. It's probably going to work fine. The problem is what happens when the vehicle finds itself in an edge case, in an unusual situation that you've never heard, you haven't seen before. And the problem with driving is that it's so infinitely complex. Every drive has something one of a kind that's never happened before. Every time you're out in the world, you encounter these one of a kind weird situations. And so you need to have a system that can handle that. And that's what multi-policy decision-making is about. It's about saying, We can't anticipate everything that might happen to a vehicle. What we need is a vehicle that can improvise, that can solve problems the first time it encounters them. Uh, But instead of building one autonomous driving software stack, we actually build about 16, each of which is independently a little bit simpler, quite a lot simpler than the kind of thing that a Waymore Cruise might build. And then this is where things get really interesting. We have a simulator on the car. And as the car is driving around, 
it runs a tournament across all 16 of those different autonomy stacks and says, which one of these is actually the right one right now? And this is really cool because our engineers never say, use policy number three at a red light. You use policy number 12 when there's a, a pedestrian in the intersection. We run them all and the simulator's trying them out. It's playing them against each other, imagining all the things that could happen. What would happen if that pedestrian stepped into the street? What would happen if the traffic light turned yellow at just the wrong time? And we can imagine all of these scenarios and we can score all of the policies and give each one a safety score. And we can pick then the policy that solves that problem, even if the engineers never thought of that situation before. I mentioned my father driving us to the Mall of America on our family vacations in the early 90s and my father's relentless commitment to never drive faster than 55. I've started to realize as I sail into this ocean of middle age and I still need to work on my boat a little bit, <laughs> but my father played a significant role in why I value automotive safety for that reason, that he was such a careful driver. For Ed, his father played an important role in why he values accessible and equitable transportation. When my father was, was struggling with dementia, he needed a ride everywhere. And that had a trickle-down impact, not just on him, but our entire family, because there was nothing else, no other way for him to get around. Creating accessible vehicles doesn't just benefit them. It benefits their families. It benefits their communities. It benefits everybody. Even for people who may not have a disabled person in their family, imagine how much more confidence you have that your quality of life can continue even if you were to get into an accident because those capabilities, those resources are going to be there for you. This is good for our society as a whole, even for people who don't use it. Although Ed and I talked a lot about autonomous vehicles, I was keen to hear his thoughts on electrification. Recently, I had the opportunity to interview Benjamin Krieger, the Secretary General of CLEPA, the European Association of Automotive Suppliers. I will leave a link to that in the show notes, but one of the things CLEPA advocates for is technology openness regarding electrification. It's the idea of keeping an open mind to other propulsion systems in situations where electrification isn't, or maybe not yet, the ideal solution. What was interesting is how Ed has a similar viewpoint. I think it's really clear that the world is going to be around EVs. EVs have huge amounts of advantage in terms of sustainability, uh, environmental friendliness. Uh, they're also easier to control from an AV perspective. But imagine that you're a small city looking to deploy a fleet of vehicles. Right now, you might have diesel buses, which produce a huge amount of particulates and, and carbon dioxide. Should you go directly to EV? Maybe, but pause. Are you really ready to invest several million dollars in infrastructure to build a charging grid so that your entire fleet of vehicles can be recharged at the same time? Are you really prepared to have your vehicles down for several hours a day because they got to be plugged in to recharge? When you think about, for example, a hybrid vehicle as an interim solution, it's not a pure EV, but versus that diesel vehicle, you're getting 90% of the environmental benefit. You're getting a vehicle that is inexpensive, super reliable, well understood, where anybody can maintain it. When it comes back to the depot and the gas tank is empty, you can fill it up in five minutes and cycle the vehicle back into service. That means higher asset utilization. It means you're getting more for your money. And it can help you pave the way to that transition for EVs down the road. Now, we are super bullish about electric vehicles. 
But we're also really pragmatic about a lot of cities today are probably better served by a fleet of hybrid vehicles in terms of their over, overall economic impact. As our conversation came to a close, I asked Ed, what is the legacy he would like to leave at the end of his career? What we want to do is we want to change the way that cities are built. This is not something we're going to do in the next year or two. What, I, what I'm excited about is seeing some of those transformations beginning. Uh, it could start with with statistics about you know how many what percentage of U.S. families own two cars and watch that drop down to one car families. Every time you convert a two car family into a one car family, you're reducing the number of parking spaces you need, but you're also saving those families money. Uh, every time you see a parking structure repurposed into something more beautiful, that's a huge win for us. Every time you see a streetscape that reduces the amount of lanes and the on-street parking so that those restaurants can spill out onto the sidewalk. But the real transformation, we have built ourselves for the last 70 years into a car-dependent sprawl. And we're not gonna undo that in a handful of years. So main mobility needs to, we need to put our noses down, we need to grind away, solve these problems. And over time, we'll see the benefits of the transformation of the cities around us. And my, my personal goal is to be the, the right person to be the CEO of May for, for years to come. But when, when the time is right for someone else to be the CEO, uh, I hope that we will continue the mission and the vision and that I'll continue to be able to watch the growth and the success and see that vision come to life. See the show notes for more resources and information on everything we covered here. AutoVision News Radio is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and more. In Detroit, alongside Ed Olson, I'm Carl Anthony, AutoVision News Radio.